Hey, thanks for joining us today for reading together as we continue to work our way through the spirit of the disciplines, understanding how God changes lives. A great book by Dallas Willard. We're almost finished. We're on chapter 10 today. Chapter 10 deals with the right uses of wealth and poverty. Here's the first thing we're going to look at. First thing Willard says, he says, the idealization of poverty is one of the most dangerous illusions of Christians in the contemporary world. Stewardship, which requires possessions and includes giving, is the true spiritual discipline in relation to wealth. Now, Willard here is setting out to be very provocative and controversial. There are some in the Christian world throughout the last couple of millennia that say, if we look at Jesus, the best way to go is to be poor. Uh, we talk about the preferential option for the poor. It's better to be poor. If you have wealth, I mean, Jesus said to the young, rich young ruler, give away everything you have to the poor and come follow me. So the obvious solution for every Christian is to give away everything they have and to be poor, to have voluntary poverty. Now, Willard's questioning that. He's not going to question in this chapter that that's appropriate for some people. But what he's questioning is that that's the right thing for everybody. And we'll see how he makes his argument here. Uh, he, he says that stewardship, and to steward something, we have to have possessions. And we're going to have to give. When we're stewards, we recognize that what we have, whether it's much or little, it's not ours. We don't have it. We don't manage it for ourselves. We are servants of others servants of God, servants of the people around us. So he's talking here about stewardship as the proper spiritual discipline in relationship to wealth. Uh, he continues to talk about frugality. We've already seen a little bit about frugality when we looked at the disciplines of abstinence. He says frugality is both a discipline and a primary Christian virtue, but it must be noted that such failures of giving, here he's talking about not giving, being stingy and selfish, concern the use of goods, not their possession. To possess riches is to have a right to say how they will or will not be used. To use riches is to cause them to be consumed or to be transferred to others in exchange for something we desire. To trust in riches is to count upon them to obtain or secure what we treasure most. If we trust in riches, we will also love them and come to serve them. Now, just in this one section, it's fairly clear that this trusting in riches is wrong for all of us, all of us who claim to follow Jesus anyway. And it doesn't matter whether we have riches or just desire riches. It can be that we're poor people, and we're just hankering after getting wealthy. Uh, our standard of wealth might not be a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos version of wealth, but hey, if I can just make 50000 a year, then I'm going to have enough. But our goal then, our purpose then, is to trust in riches. Trusting in riches is always wrong, always leads us astray. Using them, possessing them, those things can be right. But trusting in them, building our life in them, finding our identity in them, leads us away from God. 
Uh, Willard continues, some who are well off often have actively wronged their neighbors to get or to keep their wealth. Others wrong their neighbors by allowing them to suffer rather than share with them. There is an obvious inequality in the distribution of the goods needed for life, and much of the inequality is a reflection of injustice. Hey, if you pay attention to economic discussions in our culture these days, you know we make much of inequality. You've probably heard how over the last generation, the rich, the people at the very top, have become much richer. They've gotten a much larger percentage of the total pie, if we want to use that metaphor, than the people at the bottom. Uh, during the last nine months, while we've been going through the pandemic and a major economic downturn, people at the top are, for the most part, doing pretty well. Stock market's up. Their businesses are doing well. Big income. They're doing great. There's a lot of people at the bottom. They're not doing so great. Especially, I think, of people working restaurants, food service industry, travel industry. So people are hurting. What are we doing for them? Is there anything we can do? So there's inequality that we can point at. And sometimes that inequality is itself harmful, is itself bad. Sometimes it's just the way things are, and it's not so harmful. One of the things that's also happened during the last generation or two, as we look at the rise of inequality, is also there's been a vast surge of people out of the desperately poor around the world. Those that don't have any food, those that have no place to live, there's much fewer of that. Radical poverty is on the decline, even while inequality between the top and the bottom is increasing. So what are some of the things that we can do, we who are well off, and compared to most people in the world, we in America, we're pretty well off. But even just relative to the people around us here, many of you who are listening, you're okay. You're, you're well off. Some of us, we wrong our neighbors in, in the way we get what we have or the way that we keep what we have. This can sometimes get in our consciences, maybe, when we look at history. And we look at the ways that uh, we of European descent, how our ancestors came to the country and said, oh, the land is empty. It's free for the taking. Just sort of ignoring the fact that there were people already here, but they lacked our concepts of ownership and our economic practices. So we just sort of bulldozed them, uh, killed a lot of them, took their land, and we're fairly happy holding it now and feel no qualms about continuing to own it forever. Also, in many places, uh, we have taken advantage of our neighbors. Uh, sometimes we could justify that, oh, they're, they're black or they're Hispanic or they're white or they're in some category or another, so we're okay taking what they have. Well, that's injustice. Let's see, misuse. There are ways to misuse wealth. Willard says the wealthy also obviously and persistently misuse their wealth in many ways. The first way he mentions is decadent luxury. So much stuff that we have in conspicuous consumption. Our houses, multiple houses. Our cars, multiple cars. And they're luxurious cars. Our vacations, our travels, our clothes. So many ways in which we're decadently luxurious. We also misuse our wealth in coercing the poor, making the poor serve us. Uh, sometimes in menial jobs, sometimes in torturous conditions. I remember when I was in seminary in Kentucky, uh, 
we lived out in the holy city of Wilmore. And when we drove into Lexington, the big city, I mean, Lexington is the center of horse country. And it's not just people have horses, but there's important horses there, race horses, show horses, important things there. And we, we observe sometimes that the stables, the horses in sure did look nice. In fact, the stables look way nicer than the houses of the people that worked for them. See, misuse of wealth also is the support of harmful practices and evil people through our investments. Hey, we don't, we don't really care what you're doing in your business as long as you give us a good return on our money. If we have a good ROI, return on our investment. Then, yeah, it's okay if you're making weapons that destroy the world. It's okay if you're polluting the earth. It's okay if you're abusing people and paying them below minimum wage. But yeah, we're getting a return, so that's okay. Then, of course, there's that last one that we've already mentioned, misuse of wealth, which is trusting and serving it. Uh, Willard points at John Wesley. Uh, I'm a Methodist, so spent a lot of time looking at Wesley and his teaching and money. Uh, Willard is not excited uh, about Wesley. Wesley. He thinks Wesley bought too much into the ethic of poverty. Let's see what he says right here. He says, quoting Wesley, true scriptural Christianity has a tendency in the process of time to undermine and destroy itself. Uh, I, I think here of some of the economic teaching that looks at how capitalism uh, raises up successful, and I'm thinking here successful in terms of monetary income, um, produces wealth, and then the next generation of students, uh, of, 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 of people in those families, they turn away from business, they turn away from acquiring wealth and become critics of wealth and the capitalist system that got them their wealth. So capitalism is not self-sustaining in that way. But, but Wesley here is talking about scriptural Christianity. If we live in obedient to God in the area of money, then we're going to gain more money because the God's way with money is just plain wise. Uh, he said, adds here that living God's way in relation to money begets diligence and frugality, which makes one rich. Riches in turn naturally beget pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. Wealth for Wesley is very dangerous. Money is dangerous. Wesley, uh, uh, if you want to know how to get rich, if you want to know how to live a monetarily prosperous life, don't look at Wesley. Uh, Wesley pretty much started off all his life in ministry uh, earning 28 pounds a year. By the time he died, still living on about 28 pounds a year. His income was much more, but he gave it all away. And he died with very little in the way of possessions. This is where Willard sees a flaw in Wesley. Uh, he says, I can see only one possible way for dealing with money. This is looking at Wesley again. Do you gain all you can and save all you can? Then you must, in the nature of things, grow rich. Then, if you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, give all you can. Otherwise, I can have no more hope of your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. This is Wesley speaking. This is Willard quoting Wesley. Uh, you notice that Wesley seems to think that riches, wealth is irredeemable that it can't be used in a godly way, that it's necessarily corrupting and dangerous. 
Well, there's not going to go that way. Uh, I think Jesus sort of goes that way. Jesus sees, as, as we're going to see, Willard himself saying, riches as deceptive, uh, as, as de giving us delusions. So we have to be careful here. But notice the general pattern here that Wesley gives. Uh, in, in the Methodist church, stewardship time, you hear this repeated frequently, just sort of abbreviated. Gain all you can. In other words, work hard, work industriously, apply yourself. Save all you can. Now, when we today hear the admonition to save all we can, what we think it's saying is put money in the bank. That's not what Wesley's saying. What Wesley's saying is don't spend. He's not talking about building a big bank account here. He's saying be frugal. Recognize that you don't need all that stuff that the world says you need. And then give all you can. Because you'll be saving a lot. You'll, you'll be prosperous because you're working hard. You'll have a lot extra, a lot left over because you're frugal. But then give. Be generous. Willard does jump immediately into talking about deceitfulness of riches. Uh, he says, looking at Matthew 13, 22, of course riches are deceitful. In the absence of a vividly superior life in God's kingdom, wealth creates in most of us. Notice that most of us, not just a few, not just those who are weak-willed or weak-minded or, or uh, uh, supremely evil. Most of us, an illusion of security and well-being that causes us to trust it rather than the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, from 1 Timothy 6. It may also be said with assurance that most rich people do trust and serve mammon, but the delusions caused by possessions cannot be prevented by having none. Now this, this is Willard's getting a little, little uh, nuanced here. Being poor does not deliver us from the delusions of wealth. We might not have wealth, but we might be deluded into thinking if only we had wealth, if only our lives were as easy as rich people's, then we'd be okay. But that can also be a trusting in wealth. Now, now you notice here, Willard's not being easy on those of us that are wealthy. It's not being easy on those of us that have riches or many possessions or who are doing well. Still being hard to say it's still for most of us. Wealth creates an illusion that things are okay, that we're secure. And everything's under control. He continues, let's be clear about one thing. Whoever cannot have riches without worshiping them above God should get rid of them if that will enable him or her to trust and serve God rightly. So if what Wesley says is true, if getting rich necessarily leads you astray, get rid of your riches. Choose poverty. Set it aside. Give it away. But what Willard's doing is questioning whether that is a necessity for everyone. He thinks that it's possible to have wealth, to use wealth in a godly way, and to not trust it, and to not be deceived by it. He goes on, and this is an important part of his argument here. He says, charity and social welfare programs, while good and clearly our duty, cannot even begin to fulfill our responsibilities as children of light to a needy world. 
They cannot take the place of adequately prepared, godly men and women who will assume the responsibility under God and by his power of owning and directing the world's wealth and goods. There's a lot of wealth out there. There's a lot of good stuff out there. How are we using it? Are we using it to bless people? But what we're allowing here is, is the idea that there's business. We can get engaged in business. We can do things. We can have enterprises that are designed to employ people, to give people jobs, to help people advance in life, to bless our communities, to generate income, not just for ourselves, not just for our families, but for other people. The idea of being in business is to take what God has blessed us with and use it for the good of others, the good of God's kingdom. And sure, we, we might imagine sometimes that a system in which everybody was provided for by the government, by those social welfare programs, hey, that'd be ideal. Nobody would be greedy. Nobody would be wealthy. Um, I, I haven't seen that when I look at world history. I haven't seen that when I look across cultures. Uh, cultures that might aim at that, like Soviet Union, uh, there's still plenty of greed, plenty of ways to manipulate the system and make sure that not everybody was quite as equal as everybody else. But Willard's saying here that we can use our wealth, use our riches, however they might be, to bless others, to build others up. He goes on to talk about living in poverty. The life for the poverty-stricken is simple only in the sense that the motions of a person in a straitjacket tied to a tree are simple. There's not much to them. How'd you like to be in a straitjacket? How'd you like to be in a straitjacket tied to a tree? What can you do? Well, your life is pretty simple. If somebody comes by and puts food in your mouth, you might eat. Otherwise, you're going to die. Now, we don't want that kind of simplicity. He continues, no one is, is more torn and fragmented by the manifold demands of life than the poor. They just can't do much about them. One of the few luxuries enjoyed by people of all ranks in life is speculating how much better life is for those in other positions. Oh yeah, it's such a blessing to be poor that you don't have the worries of, of making the payroll for your company. You don't have to worry about whether you're taking your vacation in Paris or in London, or doing a safari in Africa. You don't have to worry about maintaining multiple cars or multiple homes. No. Willard recognizes that being poor, real poverty, is hard. It's torturous. It's suffering, real suffering for people. So we shouldn't romanticize it. We shouldn't say, oh yeah, everybody should be poor. The objective, Willard would say, economically, is to bring people up, not necessarily to knock people down. So we, in our use of riches, wealth, resources, we as stewards of the blessings of God, are stewards to bring people up, to come alongside people, discern their needs, and help them advance, help them meet their needs so they can have the dignity of providing for themselves and their family and not just having a handout. Yeah, sometimes a handout is necessary. Sometimes a handout is desperately needed and is the perfect way to obey God. But sometimes it's more long-term. Sometimes it's giving people not just a handout today, but maybe helping them find a job, maybe helping them develop job skills, maybe seeing the, their family through for a while, maybe giving them scholarships, tutoring their kids. He talks about how Jesus startles us 
says, Jesus' teaching does not lay out safe generalizations by which we can engineer a happy life. Instead, it is designed to startle us out of our prejudices and direct us into a new way of thinking and acting. It's designed to open us up to experience the reign of God right where we are, initiating an unpredictable process of personal growth in vivid fellowship with him. This is the key. This is what we're looking for in the spiritual disciplines. It's life with God. If our riches, if our wealth, if our possessions are getting in the way, if we're yearning for a life with riches, put them aside. It's the life with God that matters. And it's out of the life with God that we get the compassion, the broken heart that enables us to use what resources we do have in our control for others, to use them in a godly way. Love is also essential. Willard says the overarching biblical command is to love. And the first act of love is always the giving of attention. Therefore, the poor are not to be avoided, forgotten, or allowed to become invisible. We are to see them as God's creatures of equal significance with anyone else in the divine purpose. This is essential, learning to see people, recognize people, acknowledge people. Uh, when, when we're walking down the street in the big city and there's a homeless person there, and it's so easy to just ignore them, pretend they're not there, avert our eyes, because we, we think that if we see them, we're responsible for them. We need to give them something. Yeah, well, they're saying, yeah, we're called to love them. Acknowledge their presence. It's not so hard to say, good morning, or hello, or hey, I'm, I'm going out to eat. Uh, can I get you some lunch? It's not that hard. Most of us could afford doing something like that. But the key thing he's talking about here is acknowledging people, seeing people, not being blind to them. And not thinking, man, if, if they just worked as hard as I did, they wouldn't be in their situation. If they only applied themselves to their jobs, to their education, to not making those mistakes that they made, then they'd be okay like I am. And we called to love them. Willard adds, the most biblical of churches are permeated with favoritism toward the rich and comfortable, the beautiful and famous or at least toward our kind of people. We cannot sustain our programs, we are told, unless we can attract and hold the right kinds of people. Uh, yeah, we know how that is, don't we? I mean, we have these buildings to maintain. We're heavily invested in buildings in our churches and staff, I mean, paying us preachers, us staff people, got to pay the bills. We need the right kind of people who can give enough money so we can pay all the bills. But Willard adds, these people seem to have forgotten that the church's business is to make the right kind of people out of the wrong kind. And by right kind of people, he doesn't mean wealthy, he doesn't mean prosperous, he doesn't mean rich, he doesn't mean people who help us pay the bills. More often than not, the wrong kind of people in God's eyes are precisely the right kind by the world standards, or are even our kind. One of the things I pray for for the churches I pastor is that we would reach out to everybody. That through what we do, whether it's the formal activities of the church or the lives that we live outside the formal church setting, 
that people would come to faith in Christ, that lives would be changed in a way that people know that it's Jesus doing it. They don't say, oh, wow, yeah, y'all have a great program. Oh, yeah, y'all have a great, beautiful building. You have a great preacher. You have great staff. And I want people to come away from here saying, man, y'all serve a great God. Y'all are obviously full of the Spirit. You're being transformed to love people the way Jesus does. I pray for people to show up at our church and to be welcomed heartily. People who look like sinners. People who don't look like us. People who don't look like they have their lives together. That's what I'm praying for. This is the last quotation that we're going to look at from this chapter. Willard says, the role of Christian ministry or the special religious vocations is to embody and communicate the gospel of God's government to all and to prepare those who can stand in the crucial secular area of the world to be religious caretakers of the world's good. If taught well, such Christians within important secular environments will then be on the job to see to it that what needs to be done with the goods of this world is done as it needs to be done. Too often we get to the position where we think, okay, if I'm called to ministry, if I'm going to be a servant of God, what that means is I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to be a youth director. I'm going to be a, a music leader in the church. Well, I'm going to be a Sunday school teacher. All oh, that is great. We need those. But what Willard's getting at here is that all of us have a calling to advance the gospel, to advance the good news of Jesus, the King who rules. And we do that whatever our job, whatever our employment, whatever our space in society, in the community, and that we do it well. We do it to bring people along. We do it to display and to share the love of Jesus so that being a business person can be just as godly a calling as any other. Not that becoming wealthy is God's call, but being able to use that wealth be able to use that business to bless people and help bring the world more in line with God's desires. That's what we're doing. Now, this is a tough topic for us. Uh, we're not used to talking about money, not used to talking about wealth. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be looking at money on a, on a Sunday in my, in my message. Uh, this month, I'm going to be doing a series on how we're going through a time of testing. And one of the areas of testing is in the area of finances. And the question I'm going to ask each week is, how are we doing? Could we do better? Let's pray as we close out today. Father, thanks so much for bringing us together to talk about riches, to talk about wealth. Lord, we want to do it your way. If doing it your way for us means giving it all away, Lord, show us that. If doing it your way means that we give more, show us that, Lord. Lord, open our eyes to the people around us. Open our eyes to their needs. Show us how we can be a part of your meeting their needs so that we can be an answer to their prayers for the basic needs of life. Amen. Well, thanks again for joining us today for reading together. Hope to join, you'll join with us next time. Bye.